Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. But it's all right now. In fact, it's a gas. It's all right now. The Sticks Wrestling Podcast is a gas, gas, gas. I know. They get better every week. You don't have to tell me. This is John McAdam, and you are listening to Stick to Wrestling. Uh, right now, as we are recording, we are in the middle, middle of a major thunderstorm. So if you hear stuff crashing in the background, that's what it is. Don't call the cops. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. And sure, there are some good podcasts out there. But are there any of them wicked good? I'll tell you what. Let's ask Deborah Harry from Blondie what her reaction would be if someone dare suggest that there's another wicked good podcast out there. Just go away, go away, go away, and stay away. Okay, another nice one out there. This is going to be released on Friday, July the 3rd. Uh, the next day is July 4th. I want to wish everyone a safe and happy 4th of July. And you probably aren't going to want to hear this, but when I say safe, I mean don't be out there in a crowd. Just be safe. And with that, we are going on to part two of our conversation with Thomas Bain from last week, where we discuss a 20-year-old episode of Nitro. It was a really good convo. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. Here goes. So let me see. I have now figured out that Kevin Nash is the top baby face, and I think Goldberg turning heel like i think those two things are related that did nash have the book at at some point before this or was it after i no i I, nash had the book before because nash booked himself to end the streak Uh uh-huh of course this is beforehand yeah yeah i think nash as booker i mean he knows what he's doing and he is going to he basically i mean he he pushed himself to end the streak and you know these guys know how to maneuver i mean he he knew it was valuable to kevin nash to devalue goldberg and he did it it was a schmaltz finish and i think in and of itself goldberg had to lose eventually and you know at that point in time why not kevin nash but when then nash drops the title to hogan the next night then that's what killed goldberg credibly that's what started I'll tell you something. There are still people who argue that that finger poke of doom was not a major blow to WCW. But I I remember the reaction after it happened. I mean, people who liked WCW were outraged. And I I think the outrage is overstated to an extent. Is that the magic bullet that killed WCW? I don't think so. No, there were there was these kind of you kind of seen these three finishes and 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 Nash really kind of took that because I know that Shawn Michaels and Hunter Hearst Helmsley had the same type of finger poke thing with the European title whenever they were ordered to wrestle for when they were in DX and no one cared then. But yeah, granted, it was the European title, not the WCW World Heavyweight title. I, I think that's that's what made the difference. Yeah, that that's right. I had forgotten about that whole thing. Uh, anyways, next up, Scott Steiner versus Mark Bagwell. Scott Steiner, I do not know what to say about that physique, man. I mean, the 90s, and this is, you know, 2000, 
the 90s were all about bulk and not about, you know, having any kind of flexibility. And Scott Steiner, my God, he was an absolute freak. I am not a steroid expert, but he had to be taking some crazy stuff. As a matter of fact, friend of the show, Chris Berg, uh, reminded me that they had this stuff called Synthol that was around in the 90s. And this stuff was supposed to be crazy dangerous. You injected it right into the muscle that you wanted to get bigger. And I suspect this might have been what Scott Steiner was using. It looked like he had heads of cabbage on his biceps. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that really kind of surprised me was he wasn't Scott Steiner of 1990s. But you look at him right there, and, he, and he's still very passable. He really fell off a cliff between that time and when he was WWF. Because he was Big John Studbad in the WWF. Yeah, oh, and like, you mean after this run? Yeah, whenever, whenever he came, whenever the company folded. Because right now, he's still that same physique in 03. But he's totally, he, he cannot work one bit. In 2000, he can still work a little bit. Because, you know, Marcus Bagwell isn't a, a great worker by any means. And he's juiced to the gills himself. But they had a passable match. Yeah, no, this was not a bad match at all. By the way, they've got he, Scott Steiner. Like I said, I watched this in a vacuum. I wasn't watching. He's got a girl with him called Midasia. Now, the other channel has a girl named China. Apparently, WCW has a girl named Asia. And now there's a Midasia in the middle of this. I think this all came about with Vince Russo and Ed Farrar playing a game of Risk one time in the back. <laughs> and I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure had WCW survived, we'd have gotten all the territories involved somehow. We would have games of risk that literally would last all day. We would play risk all day. No one would win. We'd go home to eat, and then we'd try to finish at night. This is what life was like for me when I was 15. Anyway, uh, so Shane Douglas comes out and and attacks Bagwell, and apparently his ankle is fine, and no one's going to do anything about it. I did see Madden say, well, that ankle here healed up pretty quickly, which is kind of at least, at least someone had yeah. enough uh, wherewithal to talk about that instead of saying, oh, there's Shane Douglas again. You know what? Again, we're going to point out it's in a vacuum. Everyone hated Mark Madden, but I thought he was pretty good on this show. Well, look at it this way. Madden was definitely better than Larry Zabisco. At that point in time, he was better than a Bobby Heenan who was just there for the paycheck. Oh, yeah. You kind of need that quasi-heel announce. You got Scott Hudson being kind of like, where was Mike Tanay? Was Mike Tanay out of, out of the company by then? I am not sure. So I thought Mike Tanay was still hosting Worldwide or things like that. So to replace him with Scott Hudson, who I kind of had on par with Tony Schiavone, both of them were just announcers, not really analysts, so to speak. It didn't make much sense. No, but one thing I, I did like, I, I, I we'll get more into this later. I did, did overall, I did not like the announcing, but one component I liked about it in starting in the eighties, I mean, every pairing in the announcer booth was, it was, you know, the, the straight guy announcer guy. And then there was the overly obnoxious guy trying to play heel, trying to be Jesse Ventura or whoever. And by 2000, I was really tired of that. I thought Madden did a really good job being subtle in that role. You know why the announcement wasn't bad, in my opinion? Because for the last four years in WCW, every undercard match was just background 
for them talking about the main event that night. Yes. And they really didn't do that. And they really didn't do that this time. No, they didn't. That's, that's an excellent point. So anyway, I'm sure we have all been asked, what wrestler got the biggest pushes that were completely unwarranted? I have met Jeff Jarrett, and he is a nice guy, but God damn, he got so overpushed by the WWF in the early 90s or early to mid 90s, then again as the decade wore on, and now he's the WCW world champion. I don't get it. Jeff Jarrett, well, I don't think he was overpushed in WWF. He was, he was the Intercontinental Champion, a mid card guy. When he left, you know, each time he was the Intercontinental Champion. But make no mistake, he was a clear three or four rungs below the main event level in WWF. He might have been the IC champion, but no one was buying him against Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, none whatsoever. He was on par with guys like Steve Blackman, like D'Lo Brown at that point in time. But in WCW, again, this is one of Vince Russo's guys. You know, Vince Russo is the one that kind of, you know, brought in Deborah McMichael, gave him the guitar, had him, you know, started that. The whole thing with him, Jared busting guitars over people's heads began in WWF and then became obnoxious in WCW. Yeah. I just, you know, like I said, he's, Skilled in the ring, he's he's not a he's not a bad interview, but he he just does not have it, in my opinion, when it comes to charisma. It's it, it's a complete charisma void. Is he a guy that I think could challenge for the world title on a off pay per view? And by that I mean like not one of the big four. Yeah, sure, I could see him challenging for the title at like you know Road Wild. Or at, you know, Super Brawl or something like that. Could I see him headlining the Great American Bash or Starcade? No. So no. I, I think that maybe could Jarrett be a fringe player in the main event? Yeah, sure, why not? Is he the main event? No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, he was supposed to get a fringe pay-per-view uh, world title shot and a, a minor program against Steve Austin in the WWF when Austin was champion and Austin held some grudge back when he worked for Jerry Jarrett and just refused to do it. Well, I think that was part of it because the, the story went that Austin got his paycheck and, you know, I guess Jeff Jarrett walked up to him and said, you know, staring at it won't make it bigger. And that was part of the reason, but supposedly when Jeff Jarrett came back in 97, 97 is when he came back to the WWF. Is that, that, that sounds it? right. 97. He came back and he cut a promo in the middle of the ring, you know, kind of a you know, Vince Russo worked shoot promo. And he called out Steve Austin for using Austin 316 and said, he's religious and that's blasphemy, blah, 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 blah. And I guess Austin lost his shit about it. Huh. And that is probably why, you know, Austin and Jarrett never happened. Well, I, you know what? Things happen, and usually they happen for more than one reason. I, I, I had not heard that story, or at least I don't remember it. This Pamela chick who's doing the interviews is really annoying in like her TMZ manner. I mean, she was fucking terrible. They had fifteen Nitro girls, and you know, you had Molly Holly, you had whoever the Macho Man, uh, Gorgeous George, whatever her name was. You had Medusa. You had you know. 
Kimberly Page. You had a plethora of women, and someone decided that Pamela Paulshock, with her deer-in-the-headlights look and her inability to deliver a one-liner, should be the person doing live television. <sighs> you, you know, here's that's the why thing. They died. That's why they died nine months later. That's one of, the, one of the, you know, not that reason, but decision-making behind it is why they died nine months later. Yeah. I, I mean, here's the thing, like, and this is, to me, Wrestling 101. You need an interviewer who knows how to not make anything about themselves, and she was making the interviews all about herself. Yeah, and the thing about it is, Unless the announcer or the interviewer is already an established character, you know, good or bad, it does nothing to get, have them get over at the expense of who they're interviewing. Yes, I agree. So now we have a bizarre thing where Miss Hancock is trying to steal David Flair away from his fiance Daphne, and this is just the... Uh, the only thing that stops it from making it the ultimate Vince Russo angle is that there's no, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> there's no incest involved. Thank you. I, I'm a big fan of Stacey Keebler. I think at this time she was only maybe 20 or 21 years old. And I, I think they had hired her to be a Nitro girl. And either the Nitro girls had kind of phased out by then or they saw her as just, you know, a radiant beauty and they said, okay, we got you know bigger plans for her or whatever it was. Cause I believe she was a Baltimore Ravens cheerleader when they found her. And that sounds right. She really kind of just came from out of nowhere in WCW. I think, she, I think there was a standards and practices gimmick going on with, Oh, I can't remember who was in it. Lenny Lane, maybe was a part of it. I, I can't remember who was a part of that uh, gimmick, but that's where the Miss Hancock part came in. She was the person who would, you know, basically she was, they, Vince Russo made a gimmick about HR, is what he did. Right. The inside of inside jokes. <laughs> yeah, he was mad at standard and in practices, so he made a goofy gimmick about them. Just like Vince made a goofy gimmick out of uh, Mike Rotundo being IRS when Vince was mad at the Internal Revenue Service. And she made it work. I mean, to her credit, she was standing after the gimmick had, you know, had, had shelf life. They kept her around. Probably keeping her with David Flair might not have been the best thing, but, you know, she made a career out of it, so good on her. And you know what? She's obviously a stunning woman. I thought she did a really good job on camera. I thought Daphne did a good job with this, too. It's just that the angle doesn't make any sense to me. I believe Daphne was in OVW for quite some time after the sale, but she never made it back to uh, WWF or never made it to WWF. And I kind of wonder why, because they, they kept her there for so long. I don't know if it was to develop her more, change her character, or what was going on. But they they invested a lot of time there. And that's probably something that, you know, obviously Jim Cornette would have a, a better knowledge of, obviously. But that, that kind of shocked me, because most of those folks, they either sink or they swim. And if you swim long enough, they give you a crack at it. But she was there for several years, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so now with next match, Lance Storm against the Disco Inferno. Lance is wrestling. Now, Lance doesn't even work here, but he's allowed to wrestle. And Lance is a great wrestler, but he's in there in, I think, a pair of pants and athletic shoes. And I was surprised he actually blew a couple of spots here. I think that's more Disco, though, than anything, because um, Disco is a 
he's a competent worker, but he's not a, a good worker by any means. No. And I think that Lance is just moving, you know, at a lightning pace and just, you know, Disco couldn't keep up. No, that is a possibility. I mean, maybe I'm blaming the wrong guys. So the rest of the filthy animals run in. What a shock. I read somewhere that Vince Russo put these guys together, this troop, the filthy animals, and he wanted them to be the degeneration X of WCW. When I read that, I, I did not understand it. I mean, you know, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, I thought they were funny on TV together. China had her role. Then you add Road Dog to it. I mean, he's an obvious talent and a very charismatic guy. Billy Gunn gets a lot of crap, but I always liked him and I thought he fit in well with the group. So it all worked. It all made sense. I, I don't understand how he thinks this group is going to measure up to DX. Well, the problem here is Cody's a, a, a good promo. Disco is good at comic relief, so to speak. Yes. But Ray and Hoovy can't talk. Exactly. So what, you, what are they going to do? Usually the guys that can't talk are the muscle. Well, the muscle for the filthy animals stands five foot five. <laughs> if that. How does that work? I mean, I noticed it's not fair because they were working with Ginger and O'Hare, but my God, Hoovy and Ray are small. It's not as if, you know, Sean O'Hare is seven feet tall. He's probably 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. Yeah, that's still a big guy. And, he, and Ray comes up to his sternum. <laughs> I, I hear you. So now we go to Vampiro versus this Dale Torborg guy. And they have, I mean, I guess that's who Vampiro was challenging. And they have what I thought was a really bad backstage brawl. I answered an email during this. You can go ahead and skip it. I saw where this was going, and I just I couldn't punish my eyes to actually watch it. I kind of just <laughs> did my own thing there. Because I, I mean, wasn't the part about Dale Torborg becoming the Kiss Demon? Because WCW paid up, I think, seven figures to have Kiss do a live concert on Monday Nitro, which I believe was two songs. And I believe part of that deal was. When this wrestler, the Kiss Demon, so to speak, which is Dale Torborg, was going to be given a pay-per-view main event. Mm-hmm. So didn't they? Well, they didn't. But I think what they did was whenever Vampiro wrestled him, I think they called it a special main event or a double main event or whatever. They gave it some kind of, you know, fancy terminology to kind of go you know, tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, this is the main event, too, sort of thing. Yeah, they uh, they said it was a special main event. And they put it on last. So that therefore, that proves it's the main event, but it really doesn't. And yeah, it was in a contract that Dale Torborg, as the Kiss Demon, had to be in a main event. I mean, and it was exactly, if I remember correctly, a million dollars for Kiss to appear on Nitro. And this is all very crazy, in my opinion. This is Dusty Rhodes bringing in David Allen Coe to follow him around the Great American Bash. Good this point. Is basically, what it comes into Bischoff bringing bands in, you know, Bischoff likes Kiss, let's bring Kiss in. No one cared about Kiss coming to sing on. That's, it's the same thing with WWF bringing Motley Crue in to play a concert. It was all just kind of one upsmanship back at this point in time. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, we've said it on the Bash shows. I mean, you know, why are we putting this music on a wrestling show? 
we don't put wrestling in the middle of concerts. I, I don't think. It seemed like, and I'm not going to get into the concert, but it, it probably, if I want to guess, I'm sure it, it lost viewership. Because people watch wrestling to watch wrestling. It's, it's yeah. a novel concept, I know. But people, when they see, okay, they're going to have a concert on for the next, you know, 18 minutes or whatever. I wonder what's going to be on Raw. Yeah, exactly. You are in the middle of a wrestling war with wrestling fans, and you're right. That's going to have people change the channel. I mean, if I want to watch music, there's 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 MTV, there's VH1, there's everything else. There's, there's a radio. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else I have to do. If I want to watch wrestling, and I'm watching wrestling, then for Christ's sakes, give me wrestling. You know, and that's the thing, I, and this is sums up you know, what I thought of this program overall. Sometimes I think, or I think now, and I thought at the time, that the complaint that, oh my God, I'm, uh, there's a wrestling show on, and there's not, it's not all wrestling. They have backstage segments and interviews, and Raw always opens with the 10-minute talking segment. I, I always thought that complaint usually felt overstated. While watching this particular show, that definitely went through my mind. There's not a lot of wrestling going on. But at least it eventually will lead to wrestling. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons singing on a microphone does not lead to Goldberg versus Kevin Nash. That is a good point. All right, so we have the final match. It is a four-way with Goldberg versus Jarrett versus Scott Steiner versus Kevin Nash, except Kevin Nash gets knocked out by Goldberg before the match. Once again, there is too much going on. Looking at Kevin Nash's attire, it, he looks like he's going to do an indie show and he can't wear his WCW outfit. <laughs> it looks like the most generic outfit I've ever seen a, a, a main event wrestler ever wear. It just is Nash across his torso. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I, I like Kevin Nash a lot more than the average wrestling fan likes Kevin Nash. And no, not just because he played center for Tennessee, but because, you know, I thought he had a good look. He has had charisma. He knew how to be funny. So he's, he's more than pushable, um, even though I know a lot of people don't like him. In the match leading up, maybe it was the match with Mike Austin, maybe it was the main event, but Mark Madden had probably the line of the night. Kevin Nash knows three moves and they all hurt. <laughs> I like that one. It was an interesting way of kind of covering up Kevin Nash's weaknesses while totally exposing them. Like, you're explaining right. them away. It's hard for me to wonder if anybody's career has been just torpedoed more than Mike Austin's was in WCW. Now that I, we get to that main event, he was an absolute monster when he left ECW and they just totally pissed him away. When I first saw Mike awesome in Memphis in 1990. Okay. I saw a lot of potential in that guy and you know, he was just starting out. He was green as grass. But he could talk a little. He had a good look. Uh, he had a good physique. And so, so going way back 10 years ago, I saw something in him. And you're right. They totally messed it up with him. They really. And, and the problem with him was 
they had him as a monster, so they'd book him against Giants. So he'd be he's 6'3", and they have him against Kevin Nash. They have him against uh, Goldberg, for example, where he, he's going to be overmatched in terms of looks. He's a great in-ring performer. You watch that. He, he kind of carries Nash to a good match. Yeah. In the opening of Nitro. And what and you would think, okay, they're going to make this heel faction of Jarrett, Goldberg, Shane Douglas, and Mike Awesome. And eventually, you know, Jarrett's the guy now that Mike will break away from the pack. They never made any effort whatsoever to do anything with Mike Awesome. This was it. No, I, I totally agree. I, I saw something in him. What did you think of the main event? It was a clusterfuck. If you watched the first 90 minutes of what Vince Russo produced, you could kind of see this coming a mile away. Mm-hmm. Okay, Nash gets beat up. Now it's Goldberg. But somehow, it, it's Goldberg, Jarrett versus Steiner. And while Goldberg and Jarrett are the heels, it's almost like kind of like a, an action movie where Steiner's fighting one guy at a time. They don't really jump him. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it was a total cluster. I mean, the guys were trying. There was a lot going on. But once again, and I, I hate to bang on this too much, it was the, the main event kind of went along with the rest of the show. There was just too much going on. Yeah, I mean, and this is probably... They go home. No, not the guns, but they're, you're, I think you're two weeks away from Bash at the Beach at this point in time. And Jarrett's defending. They've already announced Jarrett's defending the belt against Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. So there is not one mention other than in a promo by Jarrett. There's no vignette of Hulk Hogan. There's no Hulk Hogan interview. There's no Hulk Hogan promo. It's just, okay, it's Jarrett Hogan. And you're having Jeff Jarrett sell the show. Now, can <laughs> anyone else besides myself? See what's wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I told, you're right. You're having Jeff Jarrett sell this show. And once again, we have to do the uh, semi-shoot interview where he's, oh, okay, what do you, should I call him Terry? Should I call him Hollywood? It's like, don't do that. It, it's one of those things where you know, Vince Russo thinks that if you peel back the curtain a little bit, that you'll think, oh, that was fake. But this, this here... Jared's really mad. This is real. Yeah. And it, it, it's insulting all the way around. I mean, you know what? There was a time and place for it, but by this point, it had been completely burned to the ground. One thing I have in my notes here, the announcing is awful. It's like something out of a video game. Every And the whole two hours, everyone was always yelling, and by this point, they're just yelling louder. You need, you know, I mean, I don't want to come across as someone who thinks they're a pro wrestling expert because I'm not. But if you're yelling all the time, the yelling doesn't mean anything. And yelling louder doesn't make the difference. I mean, these guys were just screaming the whole, the whole Tony Schiavone, who I like in general. And, uh, oh, what was the other guy's name? They were, you know, they were just shouting all the time. Scott Hudson. Scott Hudson. Thank you. Sorry, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was, it was. I mean, what do you do? Because at this point in time, I'm sure that Russo is trying, you know, everything's, everything's a car crash. Yep. And you can't announce the car crash, you know, in a monotone voice. You have to be over the top, you know, grandiose. And what happens there is you're a victim of your own, your own uh, excitement. Because once you, once you have a baseline screaming over a Russian lake sweep, yep. then when, you know, the, 
when Goldberg hits the spear, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, he has spear. No, there's Kevin Nash, the jackhammer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because everything has been over enunciated and over the top, you know, extreme excitement. It's kind of like, okay, it's, it, it, it's passe now. Yeah. I mean, usually on raw, Ross was yelling at the end of the main event. I mean, almost always, but it was set up by having him doing the announcer in a, in a announcing in a far calmer tone throughout the rest of the evening. Yeah, exactly. Jim Ross would call the undercard matches as, as they would be. There's not a lot on the line. You announce to what's on the line. So if it's, you know, the Disco Inferno versus Lance Storm, it's kind of like, okay, well, this is, this is a, you know, a, a one-fall contest, and the winner is Lance Storm, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You don't get excited about a match that ultimately means nothing in, the, you know, in terms of the, the pecking order of WCW. Exactly. Do that for the main event. Yeah, exactly. Just more, you know, these guys, it's like, you know, this is Wrestling 101 we're talking about. So, Thomas, we've gotten to the end. What were your thoughts over on the show overall? Again, in a vacuum, I thought the show was, was moderately fine. I would probably give it a B- in and of itself. But now if we're going to be fair about it and say what came before what came after, which is probably night and day, then it stinks because you can only go by what happened the week before and the week after. So if I'm going to go by what happened on June 19th, what happened on June 26th makes absolutely no sense. And then it would probably, you know, give it a D or an F. Yeah. But again, like I said, I'm only watching this episode, so I'll give it a B minus. I think a B minus is right around where I'm coming from as well. I came in with insanely low expectations. I thought, I was going to spend two hours just hating this and, and coming onto the show and just ragging on everything. And again, I didn't hate it, but as Thomas said, you know, in a vacuum, it's fine. But here's the thing I say, you know, eh, it was, it was fine. I didn't hate it, but I am not inclined to watch the next. I, I have no uh, inclination to watch the next episode. And maybe I might just to see how, you know, what you're talking about, the lack of continuity. Well, yeah, that's the thing, because, again, these feuds, these programs, they change. I mean, not only that, there's factions. I mean, I don't know how long the Filthy Animals lasted, but I, I remember at some point in time that Disco Inferno and Alex Wright became a tag team in the 2000s after this. So I guess they didn't last very long. And then I know that at the end of WCW, that Billy Kidman and Ray Mysterio were tag, a tag team as well. So obviously, just kind of threw everything up in the air. And, you know, guys would leave, guys would quit, guys would get fired. Because that's the other part about WCW as well. They were hemorrhaging money at this point in time. So they had to figure out where to kind of plug the leaks where it could be. So, you know, guys would be on, on the show on Monday night and they'd be gone the next week. Yeah. One thing I, I hated that I didn't talk about is that to start the show, Ernest Miller comes out and he's talking about how these matches are going to get WCW big ratings. And I was just like, shut up about that. No one at, sitting at home cares about your ratings. It's one of those things where Vince Russo is trying to peel back the curtain again. And it yeah. works abysmally. <laughs> as, as usual. You know, um, and right around this time, I know, I want to say it was April or May 2000, is the first time that I heard from someone who would know that there was a chance that WCW was going to be sold. This is about a year before they were actually sold to either the WWF or an outside party that there was interest within that company of jettisoning 
that part that I don't know, whatever it is. <laughs> but Thomas, I want to thank you for not only taking the time to watch that show, but I want to thank you for being our guest. This is a good segment. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be on. Thank you, Thomas Bain, for providing such an excellent episode. And we are going to have an excellent second part of this episode. But first, I want to talk about something I get asked a lot. Like, what was the deal back in the Bruno WWF era, back in the Backland WWF era, Hogan, superstar Billy Graham, where the WWF would have the main event in the middle of the show? What was going on with that? I was actually shocked the first time I went to an NWA show and they didn't announce a return card until the Flair Steamboat match had ended and they kind of yelled on the way out, hey, we're coming back in August with the Road Warriors and the Freebirds, which didn't happen. But anyway, and here's why they did it. I actually thought it was really smart. Number one, if you have the main event in the middle of the card, you get to announce maybe an hour, hour and a half later what the show is going to be the next month. And that increases interest in the show. I mean, it's half of what we talked about on the ride home from the Boston Guard. The other half was the show that preceded it. And it made it look like, okay, the promotion is waiting to see what happens on this show so that we can properly set up the next show. So they would have uh, the main event, Bob Backlund, Hulk Hogan, whatever. Usually it was the show, it was the match on right before intermission, which was usually like the fourth, fifth match in or it would be the second match after intermission. So that's why they did it. And with that, I want to bring on our guest for this week. And joining us for this segment is Max Levy, best known as Tamale in wrestling circles. He is a message board legend. He is becoming a Facebook legend in some of the groups, including the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. Max, thanks for coming on. How you doing? Oh, thanks for having me on. That was a, a legendary intro. So, <laughs> As I'm, many uh, of mine are. All right. <laughs> we are going to talk about the 10 worst pro wrestling managers of the 1980s. Now, we are ranking them based on impact, longevity, and how much we personally enjoyed them. I want to say guys like Ernie Ladd, who was a manager for a couple of months while he was recovering from knee surgery. He doesn't count as a manager. Elizabeth and Missy, as much as we love them, they are valets. They're not managers. We're not including them. Guys who are not including or are not eligible are guys who did a few weeks for Memphis or the AWA or whatever. And this is very important. I know a lot of these guys who we're going to talk about had friends in the business. And some of you are going to listen to this and say, oh, my God, that was my friend. How can you say that about him? It's not personal. I, you know, if I mention a guy that you were friendly with or that you just liked, hey, I just wasn't a big fan of their art. Are you with me on this, Max? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. This is not personal. I'm sure that some of these horrible managers are or were very nice people in, in real life, just not very good at their jobs. Oh, I mean, that was like the one thing most of them had in common. Like, it, it occurred to me as I was making the list, like, yeah, but everyone liked him. Yeah, but everyone liked him, too, and said he was, you know, a good guy to have around as far as, like, keeping the locker room happy. It's like, well, duh, that's why they had the job. Mm-hmm. But anyway, all right, Max, tell me, in your opinion, who was the 10th worst pro wrestling manager of the 1980s? Well, this was, you know, kind of a, it was easy to get at the bottom, and it was easy to get at the top. The middle, where the, I guess the best of the worst here falls, was a little bit 
hard to peg, but I'm going with Armand Hussein just because, you know, he actually worked for a long time as a manager. And in all that time as a manager, it's very difficult for me to think of anything he did that was notable or significant. Uh, you know, he was just a guy who was there. You know, he had the whistle gimmick, which, you know, I don't <laughs> think anybody really, uh, I mean, it got him some heat, but I don't think it w- was really a, too big of a deal. And you just would think that somebody who was a manager for that long, and, you know, he worked in world class. He was in uh, Texas All-Star. I want to say that he, I know he wrestled uh, on the Gulf Coast. I'm not sure if he managed down there. You know, he was up in, uh, believe it or not, up in, up in the Seattle area for a while when uh, Dean Silverstone started that territory. He brought in. Alabama guys because he didn't want to use the same you know guys who'd been in in Portland and Vancouver forever and you know he's been around he was there a long time but just never did anything. He was on my list. He was on my bottom ten and I eventually replaced him. So he was like number eleven, number twelve on my list. I mean he it was like you said he kind of added nothing. He was uh, sort of a big deal in world class when I first started watching that show in 1983. And I mean, I don't know if he was ever a big deal as a wrestler in Dallas. Maybe that would explain it. Otherwise I have no explanation for that guy being out there. You also mentioned that it's kind of, you know, like the middle is hard. Like there really isn't much difference. I would say between like my number seven and my number 10, I could have easily had Armand Hussein in there. When we get to number five, like from six to five on mine, at least in my opinion, we fall off a cliff. Oh yeah. My, my bottom four or five, you know, was easy. You know, these are guys that, you know, just didn't have anything to offer. Yeah. My number 10 was Gene Anderson in mid Atlantic. And he would have ranked a lot higher had he had a longer run. He was as Dallas Page would say B.A. Double D bad. And, His, and I contemplated ranking him and I ended up not ranking him at all just because I, I didn't see enough of him to really know what he did. I do. I do know that, you know, when Oldie brought him back in Georgia circa 84, early 85, that, you know, he looked like some fan they grabbed off the street and, you know, he had nothing to do and nothing to say. And you couldn't figure out what the big deal was supposed to be if he didn't know the history. Oh, I, I, I remember that uh, one of the guys on my list took a look at Gene Anderson. I remember this morning in like early 85 and he ran away like the devil himself had come out. And it was just this, this shaky old man. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when Gene was the manager, like I said, he was a big deal in the mid Atlantic area. So you could kind of see him in that role as he got older. But at the end of the day, we now realize why Ole did all of the talking when the Andersons came out. Gene just could not get it done. No, no, I, and I'm getting the timing of this confused, but when Gene started managing, was that sometime around when they stopped using Buddy Rogers or Buddy Rogers quit? It always seemed like from memory, and it could be a, an incorrect memory, that you know he was just sort of there as you know an undercard heel, you know, a guy to fill in um, and whatnot, and then suddenly he was a manager, and I want to say it was because they had somebody else, and they lost that guy, or he left, or they fired him, whatever, and you know then Gene got thrown out there because, hey, he's here, and you know, we know he's not going to be a problem. I mean, maybe. I'm not sure of the timeline of yeah, Buddy Rogers leaving. Uh, I think Gene started managing after Buddy left, though. I think, I want to say it was like summer 1980, and it lasted until 1981. And, I mean, they gave him a decent push. He was managing Jimmy Snooky. He was managing the Iron Sheik. I mean, they tried. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, he, you know, big name. 
but just couldn't get it done once the cameras started rolling. So with that said, who's your number nine? All right. From there, number nine, I've got J.D. Costello, who I actually thought, you know, had some talent and had some potential. But, you know, he was basically doing, you know, a low rent Jim Cornette. And, you know, his instead of the Midnight Express, he had the Mod Squad. And, you know, you're I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but, you know, it just came off as too much of a clone of somebody else and not enough of him being himself and trying to develop his own style. You know, he had potential. Maybe if he had stuck with it, you know, he could have become something bigger and maybe, you know, develop more of his own style. But it just, you know, for the time that he was in there, which was not long, it didn't really work. This is going to be something that's interesting. One of us is going to have someone ranked on our worst who we had ranked on our best, uh, (laughs) best top 10. J.D. Costello did not make my top 10. Originally, we were going to rank all 36 prominent managers in the 1980s, and we decided to do a top, a bottom 10. I know we're going to be being negative first, and spoiler, we're going to do the top 10 at some point right after this. And J.D. Costello was not my top 10, but he was closer to the top than the bottom. I agree with you 100% that he was a Jim Cornette clone and he was being that Jim Cornette clone a after Jim had already been in Memphis and B while WTBS and Jim Cornette was on WTBS 1986 was being seen in Memphis. But at the same time, if I recall correctly, JD Costello was a DJ who wanted to be a wrestling manager. And I actually found him entertaining. Um, I not much like you said, had he, lasted in the business and had been able to develop his own character, I saw potential in him. So I, I didn't dislike him, but every point you made is valid. Yeah, yeah. And I and I can see ranking him higher. And I think, you know, as I look at you know, I ended up, you know, ranking everybody from top to bottom before we kind of decided to just, you know, concentrate on the very best and the very worst. And I, I do see a name or two higher up that I could have put further down instead of him. But you know, if he just doesn't have the body of work to warrant being higher and like we've said if he had stuck with it and had refined his character you know maybe you know he could have actually been really good but unfortunately by the time he got into pro wrestling you know the territories were dying a hard death and it just wasn't possible to make the big money anywhere but the wwf and crockett at that point so i can see why he wanted to get out of it and just you know go back to radio or whatever he was doing yeah at this point too there was a glut of managers the uh barrier of entry to get into pro wrestling was a lot lower than it was even just three years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, so many of the territories had lost, you know, the good managers to the WWF and they were trying everything they could to find replacements like Memphis was just constantly throwing stuff at the wall, trying to see what would stick, trying to find another Jimmy Hart. And, you know, they ran, you know, many guys through, you know, and no, no one ever filled that role. No one could, but they didn't even really find a decent substitute. No, and, you know, Memphis, another thing is trying to find a guy who's willing to work really, really cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, some of the, I don't remember how much Costello did, but, you know, Hart took bumps for Lawler. He took bumps for everyone. Sometimes he'd even work matches. And, you know, finding somebody who is willing to take the bumps and then who can actually take them without killing themselves uh, or getting killed by someone else is a big deal as well. Oh, yeah. Memphis was a rough territory starting right around the time J.D. Costello was there. Yep. My number nine is someone just so nondescript 
And I only put him on there because he added literally nothing, yet he was in a national promotion. He was with the WWF, Frenchie Martin. His one role was to wear a beret and carry around a sign that said, USA is not okay. It hurt me. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I have him on my bottom 10 as well, a little bit further down towards the bottom. And, you know, I guess they liked him. I guess they uh, thought, hey, you can cut promos in French for our, you know, French market and, and Quebec. But it wasn't worth it if that was what the, what the plan was. And you know what? Pretty much by the mid-80s, late-80s, I mean, I've been there so many times, pretty much everyone in Montreal spoke English mm-hmm. and Quebec City was a different deal. But that's a that's a way smaller city and you can't just have Frenchie Martin out there for Quebec City. I don't know what yeah. it was about Vince McMahon. He was so mad at Eastern Canada around this time. Yeah, yeah. He turned the Rougeau's heel. He turned Bravo heel. You know, never Bravo got you know, a run with Hogan where he got to look pretty good in uh, in Montreal. But, you know, in general. You know, they didn't try to maximize their their French Canadians as baby faces. They turned Martel heel. Yeah, I don't know what the story was there. No, I don't either. But anyway, what was your who is your number eight, sir? All right. Luscious Johnny Valiant, who I have to admit, I actually was very frequently entertained by Valiant. But a couple of things. Number one, what entertained me in 1986, you know, looking back years later, he wasn't that good. And then he was just too much of a clown you know you want to have some menace to go with the clownishness and the clownishness needs to come out when it's time for the manager to get his to get humiliated and johnny was just sort of a clown and a buffoon all the time and you know to me he didn't really add a lot to the whole valentine and beef cake package and you know then when they turned brutus baby face and you know teamed up valentine with bravo you know it just you know his purpose escaped me at that point you know they needed they moved him on, actually, you know, about a year later, but maybe less, actually. But, you know, they needed to move him on sooner, move him out of there sooner. It just didn't work. No, uh, I, Johnny Valiant is not rated in my bottom 10, but he was definitely close to the bottom than the top. Uh, perfect example of what we opened up with. Like a lot of people, Johnny Valiant was universally, I don't want to say beloved, but everyone liked the guy. So that explains why he had the job. Mm hmm. Yeah, he was. He came back too in uh, I think the latter part of '84 after Vince and Bruno made peace, and I have a feeling that you know Valiant getting taken back in because he was you know basically out on the indie circuit starving was probably you know something to do with it. And they kept him on as a house show undercard wrestler for a little while after they took him off TV as a manager. But his departure from the WWF I think more or less coincides with the breaking point between Vince and Bruno in '88. Uh, that sounds about right. Wow, you're on top of this. You know, Johnny Valiant, he would do those incredibly nonsensical, scatterbrained interviews. And if I see one, if I, I see them now, like what, one or two of them every year, and they make me laugh. But if you see them every week, uh, you know, WWF, you're watching two or three of their shows every week, and he's on, it, it just becomes less entertaining as time goes on. Yeah, and it wasn't the kind of thing that made you think, man, I got to buy a ticket to see this guy in person. You know, you saw him on TV do a promo, you know, you laughed because it was kind of silly. But then, you know, after that, there was no need, no reason to, uh, you know, to actually, you know, go out and buy a ticket to see the guy. And, and theoretically, you should want to, you know, see him get his, see his his men get beat. You know, there should be a reason to want to go see these guys. Otherwise, there there isn't a reason for this at all. 
No, I mean, and I get that managers, not every WWF manager was positioned to make money and just every heel had one. So you had to have so many. But the reality is he was just not very good. No, no. How about you? Who did you have in the spot? Number eight. I have someone that I only have him on there for starters. He was beyond bad, but he was on national television for a very short period of time. I think he was one of those guys you said you never saw. His name, his wrestling name was Mr. J.R. Do you remember him at all? Yeah, yeah. I actually have him on my list, uh, the next one down from uh, from Valiant. You know, I, I saw a little of him at the time, but luckily, if that's the right word for it, all that championship wrestling from Georgia footage uh, is on YouTube. So I, I've had a chance to really you know watch him and absorb him. And he just came off like a low-rent, you know, indie outlaw kind of guy who just didn't belong in a, a promotion with a national TV scope. And as soon as Ole shut it down to go with Crockett, you know, he vanished and I don't think he was ever seen or heard from again. My guess, and it's, I have no other information on this. It's just a guess is here's a guy who showed up. I'm guessing he lived in Atlanta. He showed up one day and he said, Ole, I'm willing to work for free or <laughs> only I'm willing to work and I'm willing to pay you to let me get on TV. Like that, that's how amateurish this guy came across as. My, my pet theory on this, and again, I, I don't have any evidence or, or information to back this up either, is that he had some sort of connection with Thunderbolt Patterson and that, you know, Thunderbolt was, you know, would, had a pattern where every couple of years he would fall out with Ole in the Georgia promotion. And then, you know, he and Jim Wilson would run some sort of indie. They did that, I think, at least three times. That and then, right. you know, he would make up with, with Ole and go back. Uh, and my pet theory is that, you know, this Mr. JR was somehow associated with him. And Thunderbolt said, I'll put in a good word for you. And Ole, like you said, probably wanted somebody who would work cheap and couldn't get anybody else at that point. So, hey, here's Mr. JR. That, that makes perfect sense to me. And, you know, I remember watching this. I was, what, 19 years old, getting up early to see this show. And it was horrible. And I remember thinking, like, when this guy was on, not just him, but a lot of the guys who were, you know, around in 85 Georgia, as it, it, it's on hospice, that <laughs> you're, you're not even trying anymore. No, no. And, you know, the, even worse, too, you know, they had Jimmy Hart flying down to Atlanta for the tapings for a while. So they had, you know, one of the best managers uh, in the game. You know, I made, uh, well, I won't reveal how high Hart is on my, on my list, but he's really high. Then he, uh, I think he quit going to Georgia even before he went to the WWF, but, you know, then he leaves and you replace him with this guy. I mean, that's just, you know, makes a bad guy seem even worse. Oh, totally. I mean, Jimmy Hart is high on my top 10. And I remember the first time I saw him on Atlanta TV, I thought he was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. He single-handedly made that program entertaining. And when he was gone, it was no longer entertaining. No, no, not at all. Habit. <laughs> Nothing all right. There. Who was your number seven? Let's see. So Armand was 10. Costello was nine. Valiant was eight. Mr. JR was my seven, who we've uh, ah. been talking about. You know, just just bad. You know, low rent indie guy. You know, didn't seem comfortable on camera. Sometimes didn't even seem like he knew, you know, which way to face the camera. It's just just terrible. Everything we've said sums it up. I've always, getting a little off subject, I always wondered why the, the new Georgia show that Ole got, fall of 1984, why that got such a terrible time slot. I mean, 
even it, it still did decent ratings in that time slot. And it wasn't like WTBS was running anything important at 10 or 11 o'clock on Saturday morning as opposed to 6, 7, 8 o'clock. I don't know. Maybe, you know, it was some sort of, you know, Vincent, the WWF had the primetime spots or the late afternoon spots at any rate. Then maybe uh, it had something to do with, you know, placating them or not upsetting them. Or maybe even there was something contractual that they couldn't run it any later. I mean, I that's yeah, they they didn't seem overly concerned with you know alienating the WWF. That was a bad fit from the start, and I can't yeah. say I'm surprised that it, it lasted less than a year. Yeah, it's odd. It's odd. I don't know. Maybe uh, Ed Turner had a premonition about how bad this show would be, and thought, let's just bury it as early in the day as possible. <laughs> it was so bad, I, and I would think too that maybe. It would have been a better, what's the word I'm looking for? You only could have had a better selection of wrestlers if that promotion would actually have given them exposure as opposed to being on it at 7.05 in the morning. Yeah, and when he opened up at first, they you know, had some decent names running around in there, but it didn't take long for guys like uh, you know, DiBiase and Jake Roberts and other guys to get out of there, and nobody of comparable status came in to replace them, and it was just a, a downhill slide from there. You know, I liked Rip Rogers. I was a big fan of his, but like it's 1984. You can't have Rip Rogers as practically your lead heel. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. Rip, you know, Rip Rogers, again, I think he's one of those guys that is well liked, but if you want to like check for promotions in trouble, he's kind of a good measuring stick because he got a, right before he went to Georgia, he was getting a huge push in Florida, you know, right after Dusty and all the big names took off for Crockett and, yeah, that's another sign right there. You know, Florida's pushing Rip Rogers. You know, things are in bad shape. Yeah, but like, and again, that's not a knock to Rip. Oh, I no, no, big no, fan not of, at all. I mean, there was a time when he was in WCW in 91. Every week, the best match on TV was a Rip Rogers match, like from any promotion. Oh, yeah, he was a great worker. Great worker. Just, you know, the, uh, I don't know if it was the gimmick or the look, but something about him didn't come off as major league. Yeah, ex- exactly. My number seven, since yours and mine were the same, there was a guy who was on Southwest Championship Wrestling in 83 for a brief period of time. And after that, as far as I know, he only did indies, but he was beyond terrible. He did a, an over-the-top, stereotypical gay character and managed Tully Blanchard, Christopher Love. Have you seen him, Tamale? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen him. You know, I've seen, you know, some of the Southwest stuff. He came up to the AWA for a little while during its bitter dying days. And am I correct? Christopher Love and Burt Prentice are one and the same. Yes, they are. Burt yeah, Prentice so is seen, his real name. So I've seen some of his uh, Memphis stuff around 92, 93 when he was there a lot. And believe it or not, uh, my number six guy on the list is Christopher Love. It was more than just a gimmick because guys have done that gimmick and it's actually you know, at least been entertaining, if not money drawing, you know, Adrian Street, Adrian Adonis in the WWF. But something about Christopher Love was just, it was like a channel changer. You wouldn't want to watch him. You know, you'd want to, you'd want to just turn it off and you'd especially not want to have it on and then have a non-wrestling fan come into the room and see you watching it. Oh, exactly. I was absolutely embarrassed to be a fan of this. And this is 83. This is when, you know, Eddie Murphy came out with an album where i mean he was just really mean to gay people and yeah yeah it was a different era you, people said things commonly and in uh in media that 
you know, and entertainment back then that you could not possibly do or say now unless you wanted to terminate your career. Yeah. You know, they could go a lot further with gimmicks like this back then. But this was, you know, apart from all the you know, social awareness and sensitivity issues, the other reason not to go with this gimmick is because it, it didn't really draw money. And, and Christopher Love specifically was just horrendous. No, he was. Uh, you know, and none of those gimmicks I thought ever worked. The only one that worked a little bit, and it, it was Adrian Adonis, but not in 86, 85. It was like 81, 82, where it wasn't an exclamation point. It was a question mark. Like, you know, you look at this guy and like, wait a minute, is he gay? <laughs> oh, you're talking about when he had like the, just uh, like the YMCA leather man. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was like, just enough to be implied, but they never went over the top with it. And sometimes he didn't emphasize it at all. And back then he also hadn't, you know, put on a hundred pounds and, you know, he was all, he was a great worker even when he was humongous, but, you know, back in the early eighties before he got, you know, really fat, he was, you know, one of the best around. Oh, I saw him have a like three-star match with the 1982 version of Andre the giant. That's, you know, Andre would stand there and Adrian would just be a bump machine. Yeah, yeah, and even, you know, in the AWA, it's funny, if you talk to people here in Minnesota, and even before he became governor, you know, and you talk about the good old days of all-star wrestling, everybody always mentions Jesse, but Adonis, you know, would hardly get mentioned at all, and he's the guy that carried that team in the ring. He carried the team in the ring, and to this day, and I apologize if I've said this on the show before, people act like, oh, yeah, you know, Adrian couldn't talk, so Jesse did the talking. I thought Adrian was an excellent interview. He wasn't Jesse level, but he was good. Oh, no, he was good enough. I mean, it wasn't like a situation where you'd have, you know, one partner do all the talking and, and the other guy wouldn't say a word. You know, uh, you know, he he could talk, he did talk, and, and he was fine. And, you know, with the big run in 86, 87 in the WWF, they even had him hosting uh, a talk segment with the flower shop. And, and he and Piper were cutting promos on one another left and right during that feud. He was, you know, not elite on the mic, but he was perfectly fine and didn't need to be hidden. Jesse was, you know, in another world as a talker, so I can see why they'd want to emphasize him. But it was, you know, no slight against Adonis. I mean, I remember the flower shop segments in 86 and in Adrian Adonis is, is dressed like an old woman from the 50s. <laughs> and I was like, this is not how gay people dress, Vince. Obviously, you don't know this, even though you're really close to New York City. But anyway, yeah. it's, is it, it is was definitely it, another one of those moments where you're thinking to yourself as you're watching you know, thinking about, you know, parents, siblings, whoever, you know, that isn't a fan, please don't let them walk in and see this, you know, hurry up and get this segment over with. <laughs> I could do a whole show on those, man. My number six is once again, a guy everyone liked and respected, but he was really bad. I, I nicknamed him the invisible manager. He, you know, he was managing the horsemen. So we know who we're talking about. Hiro Matsuda. They brought him in when JJ Dillon left. Yeah, I mean, he was totally devoid of charisma. He could not and did not speak. But wait, they had this stupid storyline back in 88, 89. There was, I don't know, a fear among Americans that the Japanese were buying everything. The Japanese owned everything in America. And they tried to exploit that to create this storyline where the Japanese, the Oh, uh, the Himaguchi Corporation. It was the, Yama, it was the Yamazaki Corporation. Thank you. The Yamazaki Corporation had bought the horsemen, and it was every bit as bad as it should have been. Yeah, you know, J.J. Dillon, 
quit to take an office job with the WWF. And I think he gave little to no notice when he was leaving. And so they were scrambling. You know, they were already down two horsemen because they you know, gone months and never replaced Tully and Arn. And then they bring in uh, Hiro Matsuda, who's also in my bottom 10, but um, lower to the uh, to the bottom. And he just brought nothing at all to the table. I'm trying to think of anything he ever said at any time in an interview or any sign- anything significant he did as the Horseman's manager or the Yamazaki Corporation's manager. And I can't think of a single thing. It's like he wasn't, like you said, the Invisible Man. It's like he wasn't even there. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched like, you know, the Barry Windham-Lex Luger match or the Ric Flair-Ricky Steamboat match from the uh, Chi-Town Heat pay-per-view. And like three quarters of the way through, oh, he, Matsuda's is there, you know? Yeah, and, and my recollection of this is bad. Was he in, did he accompany Flair to ringside for the, the match in May in Nashville, you know, where they have the Terry Funk angle afterwards? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Because I'm thinking like, you know, when the whole angle with Funk went down, you know, I don't think that, you know, he was even uh, involved with that if he was at, at ringside, which shows how insignificant he was. You know what? Now I'm thinking back. Ric Flair came to the ring with, I want to say, like 40 girls on that yeah. show. <laughs> and I don't think Matsuda was in the middle of it. OK, well, that's uh, either way, though, still, you know, a guy who brought nothing to the table. All right. So let me see. Who is your number five? Uh, my number five, and granted, I've been watching a lot of 1982 Mid-South lately, so it's made me hate him with an intensity I've never had before, but it's Paul Ellering. I thought that when he was a heel, he was incredibly annoying, but not in the annoying sort of way to where you want to see him get beat up or you want to pay a ticket, pay money to buy a ticket to see somebody get their hands on him or see the Road Warriors lose so that he gets his. It was more of the, I just want him to go away, kind of annoying. And then when they became a babyface team, you know, again, the question is, why is he there? You know, Hawk and Animal, especially Hawk, could both talk tremendously. You know, I know that Ellering, you know, was, I think, an, an actual manager for them outside of the ring. But, you know, it, why he was still with them, it's not something that can really be answered. And when the WWF hired Hawk and Animal, they did not bring Ellering along at first. They waited two years to bring him in. And that was when they needed sort of a reboot for the, for the LOD, which, you know, they, they botched terribly with the ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't know everything, but when we started hearing that the road warriors were going to the WWF, like, you know, early to mid 1990, more like early 1990, when I heard that their contracts were expiring and that they definitely wanted to leave, I was saying to myself, they're just going to be another team in the WWF. And they were a little bit more than that, but they weren't what they were in the NWA. No, no, they, it's, it was a case of, you know, they just didn't know what to do with them, which was just let them kill guys. And then after that, you know, get them into a, into a feud where, you know, people care. You know, the whole thing with demolition could have worked, but somehow it just didn't. I think adding Crush to the mix uh, really hurt it a lot because I think, Axe and Smash versus Hawk and Animal is something that fans would have been interested in. And Smash and Crush with Axe hanging out at ringside, or even all three demolition guys against LOD and, and Ultimate Warrior. It just it didn't work. And then, you know, slowly but steadily they faded down the ladder from there. Even after they won the tag titles, it never came off like they were the big stars that they used to be. No, and a lot of it too is I mean, they were so big physically in like 83, 84, 85 compared to everyone else. Come 1990, that was no longer the case. I mean, they were as big as everyone else, but everyone was that big. 
and they're in the WWF, which is, you know, filled with guys on all manner of chemicals to get that, you know, muscled and sculpted look. So, you know, in WCW, you know, you didn't quite have that. So they did stand out a little bit more there, even, even if it wasn't as much as they used to. But once they got to the WWF, you know, every other guy looks like them and plenty of guys look better. Exactly. I had Paul Ellering as my number four. When we talk about the bulk of his career, managing the Road Warriors as a babyface, look, all he was doing is stealing spotlight, number one. Number two, babyface managers are generally a bad idea. Not in every case, but generally a bad idea. And all he was doing was stealing spotlight from the Road Warriors. He was completely unnecessary. And now we get to talk about him in Georgia in 1983 and 1984. If he had spent another like year, year and a half in that role where he's constantly on TV appearing more than once on every two-hour episode, he would be a real contender for number one. He was just awful when he was managing, when the Legion of Doom was the Road Warriors and Jake Roberts. Yeah, and Ole kept pushing himself in that feud with Ellering. I mean, they you know, actually had their cage match after Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer had theirs at the Omni. It just defies belief. No, I, I, that feud was, I mean, if you want to talk about one of the worst feuds of all time, that Ole versus Ellering 1983 feud is, is definitely a contender. I know I've, I've talked about how bad Georgia was in 1983 before, so I won't go over it again, but I was even more impressed by Mr. Ellering than you were, Max. I have him at number four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not much to be impressed about there, that's for sure. All right, so he was your number five, correct? Correct, my number uh, five. All right, my number five, and right now, this is where we get to the point where we have guys who were around forever, and they were absolutely horrible. A guy, you, Max, had to watch every Saturday morning, Sheik Adnan L. Casey. Yeah, yeah. I had him towards the middle, mainly because when he first came in, you know, he was a great heat magnet. He had an element of danger about him. You know, they put him in the ring and really used him more as a wrestler at first when he first arrived. And then, you know, him and Blackwell as a team. But everybody's got a certain shelf life. You know, some guys can homestead in a territory and stay there for years and years. And other guys need to come in you know, do their eight to 10 months and then get out and go somewhere else. And Casey got here in 81 and he never really left. You know, he had a couple of times when he disappeared in the late eighties, I want to say that uh, he was a guest of the federal government over some tax payment oh. failures. Hopefully that doesn't set me up for slander, but anyway, uh, long story made short, you know, he overstayed his welcome big time. And by the end, he was just a complete joke because nobody cared anymore. And you know, the guys that he had in his stable, you know, past, you know, the point of Brody and Nord leaving in 86, you know, were all a bunch of losers. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, his interviews were never any good. Uh, this, you know, we, we talked about this with Oli and Mr. JR. I mean, at, at what point are you like, Vern, you're not even trying anymore. I mean, this, if you want to have a chic, I mean, just, you know, find a, a person of color or whoever who can actually speak. This guy couldn't even do an interview. No, no. Every interview was the same, which, you know, when it's 1981 and he's new and you haven't seen it, you know, a million times it worked. And then, you know, past, I don't know, about you know, maybe the spring of 83 at the latest, you know, at that point, you know, everybody's seen the act over and over again and it hadn't changed. And you know, nobody needed to, or wanted to see it again. Well, 
I mean, just my cute little Adnan story. I mean, I remember in 1981 getting a copy of Inside Wrestling and just staring a hole through a picture of she got on Al Casey and saying, is that Billy White Wolf? That's how smart I was. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a quite a change of gimmicks there. The, the guy who got me into wrestling, Billy White Wolf, I'm not like ragging on him as she got on Al Casey. But anyway, Paul Ellering was my number four. Max, who was your number four? Uh, my number four was Gentleman Jimmy Holiday from uh, Florida and then briefly in world class. You know, the ultimate case of a guy who, you know, not only did nothing, but had nothing to give. You know, I, I know that, you know, the storyline of him being a, a, a front for wrestlers, J.J. Dillon was managing in Florida, but couldn't publicly declare he was managing because of the whole deal with Ron Bass. And that was interesting, but it wasn't because of anything Holiday did. He was just kind of a prop. You know, I remember a Zambui Express interview in Florida, and my memory of it is Ray Candy basically, you know, pushing Holiday out of the way and just taking over and cutting the interview himself. And I don't know if Holiday said three words, you know, just had nothing happen. And then world class, you know, I think it was either right. I think it was maybe right before Brody got fired as as Booker in 87. You know, Holiday came in, managed Eli the Eliminator, lousy wrestler, but lousy manager too. Holiday couldn't do thing one to get this guy over who had a decent look, even though he couldn't do anything in the ring. Yeah, Holiday was one of those guys that, to me, was kind of nondescript, and I mean, I just, you know, didn't have anything to say about him. I remember that interview with Ray Candy, where he just sat there and berated uh, Jimmy Holiday. <laughs> yeah, and no more could... stupid matches was what he kept saying. <laughs> exactly. Stop booking us in these stupid matches. And I, I always thought that that storyline looked like it was being designed to turn Ron Bass babyface even though Ron Bass had just turned heel. I didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, I think that was a case where, I assume Dusty booked this, where sometimes the booker and Dusty was guilty of this a lot. He's got in his head an idea of what is happening and what is supposed to happen, and he gets it, but he never does anything to fill in the blanks for the viewers. He forgets that there are things that you have to explain that people can't assume or understand, and this was one of those cases where, like, I think in Dusty's head, it all made sense. But if you actually see it on TV, it doesn't make sense at all. It really didn't make sense. It, it didn't go anywhere. I mean, it was it was an interesting concept. But like I said, it, it didn't go anywhere. Are we on your number three now? Uh, did we get your number four? Paul Ellering was my number four. OK, all right. My number three was Frenchie Martin. You know, like you said, you know, if your way to get heat is the USA is not OK sign. That's a pretty good indicator that you're a lousy manager. You know, you couldn't really say or do anything he they only had him with bravo except for you know the the month that joe leduc was in and you know you'd think that if they thought something of him they would have given him more to do but instead they uh just kept him with bravo and then they got rid of him and put bravo with jimmy hart instead he was pretty awful but this this indicates something someone in my top three is not on your top 10 so that that'll make things interesting i, I have a feeling about who it might be but I, let's let it unfold here okay i i have the feeling i know who it is too my number three is someone who was so bad that the Wrestling Observer Newsletter named their worst manager yearly award after, and that's Mr. Fuji, which means that even with that, I think there were two guys that were even worse than Mr. Fuji. I mean, he was around forever. I thought he had good chemistry with Morocco because the two of them go way back. But he was awful, and he was around 
like I said, six out of the 10 years in the 80s as a manager. And oh, my, I mean, and plus, you know, you're you're doing the stereotypical Japanese thing and it's kind of insulting. You know, I, I had him just outside the the bottom 10 and yeah, I think I, I kept him out of the bottom 10 mainly because of what you said, you know, he was pretty good with Morocco. You know, if you're watching wrestling for, you know, kind of campy humor, Mr. Fuji doing his, you know, ridiculous interviews talking about mind to mind communication, you know, brought something there. Whereas some of these guys uh, in my bottom 10, you know, didn't even have that sort of redeeming quality. But to me, the ultimate example of how lousy a manager he was is, you know, they had him with uh, Yokozuna, who's getting the mega push during the first half of uh, 93 and, and some of late 92 as well. And when they need to start building things up for the big Lex Luger match at SummerSlam, they bring in Jim Cornette because they need somebody to talk because Yoko's gimmick is that, you know, he is Japanese, so they can't have him speaking fluent English. Uh, and Fuji couldn't carry the ball. So they bring Cornette in to, uh, you know, co-manage the guy and have him do the heavy lifting on the mic. Yeah. And that was an odd visual, you know, Jim Cornette with Mr. Fuji and, and Yokozuna. I mean, you could. I think even the fan who was the least smart watching that kind of knew what was going on. Like, okay, now, now they need a guy that can actually talk. Yeah, yeah. Fuji was bad. I will give you that all the way. Definitely not in my top ten. Not not even close. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, it, it's funny. Like, you mentioned, like, the couple of little good things about Mr. Fuji. Like, if there's one redeemable quality that a manager has, it k- kicks them right off this list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I thought he was terrible. I just thought there are, are 10 guys who are worse, basically. <laughs> oh, that, that makes sense. All right. We're getting down to the nitty gritty. Who is your number two, Max? My number two was the American representative of the Yamazaki Corporation, Hiro Matsuda. You know, just boring, boring, boring. You know, I know that they were in a bind because Dylan left, but, and I even think the idea of the horsemen have bought, you know, pardon me, the, you know, a Japanese corporation has bought the four horsemen. You know, that actually is an idea that wasn't completely terrible, but this was not the guy to use in this role. They needed somebody with, you know, who could exude some corporate class, but at the same time, you know, could speak, you know, exude some evilness and, uh, you know, make people want to buy tickets to see him, you know, get his rear end kicked. And that wasn't Matsuda. You know, he was just there. And they had him in a few months earlier, you know, as the guy who uh, I think was going to teach Lex Luger how to beat the Weaver Lock. Uh, you know, when oh, Mike yeah. and Dusty were building up the Starcade 87 and, you know, Matsuda, like even wrestled a little bit during that period. And I, I don't think he was as old as I thought he was at the time, but he just as a wrestler in that role just came off as completely non-threatening. You know, it's like, all right, the, the sleeper hold is tough, but, you know, he was a peer for Johnny Weaver. He wasn't somebody that should have been, you know, having matches with other guys because I think he. I think they had him against Kevin Sullivan and, and when Sullivan was doing that weird baby face thing and some other stuff. And then, you know, they bring him back a little more than a year later. And as we said, you know, there wasn't anything to him. Well, I'll tell you what, like I say, everyone loved and respected Hiro Matsuda. Everyone loved, well, everyone loved Mr. Fuji. <laughs> My <Yeah>. number two, <laughs> everyone loved the guy. Well, except for a couple of people, but like for the most part, everyone loved Paul Jones and Hey, everyone learned something from this. Paul Jones got to be on WTBS every week for like four years before they finally got rid of him because Jim Crockett and Dusty Rhodes really liked the guy. And, you know, like I said, there's something to learn from that. But at the same time, 
It makes for terrible television. And this is where longevity comes in. Like I said, he was on WTBS almost every week for four years getting a long talking segment, which is basically why I ranked him behind or above whatever Mr. Fuji, because sometimes you get a week off from Mr. Fuji. You didn't get a week off from Paul Jones. And then there was him on Worldwide Wrestling as well. So Paul Jones got a lot of exposure. That's why he's number two ahead of Mr. Fuji. Max, your thoughts? You know, I'm probably going to lose some of my uh, credibility here, but I kind of like Paul Jones. I don't know what it is or what it was. You know, maybe this is rose-colored glasses, and if I had to watch him on TBS and, and twice in syndication every weekend, I would think differently of it. But, you know, I've always been kind of a sucker for and have had kind of a soft spot for, you know, for really bad stuff in wrestling and dumb comedy wrestling. So I just remember like actually being into the Jim, the Jimmy Valiant versus Paul Jones feud and, you know, the bald headed geek chants and the, <laughs> the hair matches and all that stuff. And, you know, Paul Jones as a lead type manager, when he was with Fernandez and rude, that probably was not a very good fit for him. And uh, it didn't work, you know, him and the powers of pain. I can kind of see it a little bit, but to me, you know, him in the mid card with guys like Barbarian, Baron Von Raschke, Shaska Watley, you know, running around with all these clowns trying to get Jimmy Valiant for reasons that by then nobody could even remember. <laughs> I, I can admit that he wasn't that good, but I left him out of my bottom 10 completely. All right. Yeah, and you know what? Here's where a little bit of a controversial thought. I really think that had the Paul Jones, Jimmy Valiant feud started in like spring, well, let's, let's say the beginning of 1986. I would have enjoyed it for what it was. I thought in 86, the feud was was really well booked, believe it or not, with Jimmy getting his head shaved at the Great American Bash and Jimmy putting up his wife's hair at Starcade, and then Jones loses his hair and the feud ends. But they had that feud going since 1984. And yeah, yeah. That was the maybe got a little uh, a little tired of it by then, especially because looking back at it, I think if, I'd have to, you know, trace who was in the stable, but I want to say that the quality of the people that Jones was bringing out against Valiant got progressively worse as time went on. You know, at one point you had guys like the Assassin, you had Abdullah the Butcher, even though he was, you know, completely done as a wrestler, you know, superstar Billy Graham as a as a heel, uh, you know, had at least the name value and, you know, even diminished from his late 70s peak, still had a great look to him. But, you know, and then suddenly, you know, it's T. Joe Khan and Shaska Wally, but... Yeah, it probably went on too long, but, you know, it, it had its moments. I, I was told a long time ago that Paul Jones got the Manny Fernandez and Rick Rude. And by the way, supposedly Jones and Fernandez absolutely hated each other's guts. Um, <laughs> but I mean, Jones has confirmed that in print. But anyway, um, supposedly it was his reward for A, they liked him and B, for getting his head shaved at Starcade. They were actually going to start pushing him as a manager beyond just mid-card guys. And it didn't work. I thought the whole Rick Rude, Manny Fernandez, Paul Jones, they just didn't have chemistry together. And obviously, when you hear about Jones and Fernandez hating each other, you you, you find out why. Yeah, you know, it's, it's Rude didn't belong with those guys. You know, when they brought him in from world class, thinking about it, it's hard to think of who they would have put him with because there wasn't a spot in the horseman for him and they had Luger coming for only spot uh, eventually. And, you know, Cornette 
you know, why not have Cornette manage him besides the Midnight Express? I think he would have been a much better fit with that group, even if, you know, Cornette wasn't going to do 100% of the talking for him. But, you know, a guy like that who had the potential to be, you know, a bigger star and had already, you know, headlined in world class in Florida, granted when they were diminished, but he still headlined there. You know, for him to be, you know, with, you know, the mid-card geek manager was probably not a good fit. And, you know, Manny made, you know, for a decent sort of badass heel, but him standing next to Rude, even though I actually like the team at times, it doesn't really strike me as the best use for either. No, and what I understand is that Rude and Fernandez were supposed to elevate Jones, and it just didn't work. You know, same thing with the tag team titles. And, I mean, the tag team titles were supposed to be the first step in Rude getting a big push, and Rude left. Yeah, and then we had that whole weird deal where they, uh, you know, Rude left. So I think they said he was injured. And then Paul Jones brings Ivan Koloff out and announced that he and Manny are going to be partners and Koloff's going to assume the other half of the tag team title. And then they do that for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden they air an old match with the Rock and Roll Express beating Fernandez and Rude from months earlier. And they pass it off as a title change. It was either a non-title match where they showed, you know, the Rock and Roll Express winning one fall of a best of three falls match. Uh, and the whole Ivan Koloff is half of the tag team champions thing was completely ignored, just Stalinized out of history, never mentioned again. And it was just a very, very strange way to go about it. Yeah, Manny had left by that point. And no, no, Manny, Manny was still around. He hung around for a while. But like once Rude left, they didn't push him at all. So it's easy to see why somebody would think that he was gone because, you know, they did nothing with him. Huh. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. That's what I always remember, that Manny left, and that's why they did that. But I could be wrong. I'll talk about no, something no, he, that. He hung on into the fall. You know, he hung on through. He was around during the Great American Bash. You know, oh, that's Ivan, right. Teaming with Paul Jones against the Freebirds and stuff like that. But, you know, he's mostly just a guy. You know, he's somebody in the mid-card, you know, somebody that you could put against any random baby face. You know, if you've got, like, somebody that you just need to do something with on a card. But, you know, no push. And then that's when he bugged out and went to Memphis for a while. Yeah, that's right. I remember him at the 87 Great American Bash, so bad memory on my part. All right. I am genuinely curious now. This is going to be a bit of an upset. Who is your number one worst manager of the 1980s? My pick for this spot, the worst of the worst, is Arnold Skoland. Because with a lot of these bad managers, you can kind of say, all right, they filled a role. They used Mr. JR because... They needed somebody and they had nobody else. You know, Christopher Love, you know, with the -the over-the-top gay gimmick was a gimmick that people used to get heat back then, you know, whether we like it now looking back or not. You know, Jimmy Holiday was more of a prop in the whole J.J. Dillon, Ron Bass thing. You know, Frenchie Martin, not great, but, you know, not so bad that I put him very, very much at the bottom. You know, Hiro Matsuda at least looked like, you know, he belonged standing there. He just, you know, never talked and never did anything. but. Why was Arnold Skoland with Backlund? What did he bring to the table? You know, he'd go to ringside with Backlund when they were at Madison Square Garden, and they didn't even let the managers stay at ringside for many, many years. So, you know, he'd go with Backlund, and then he'd go to the back, you know, and they would have interviews with Bob on his own. And I rarely remember, you know, I'm granted I didn't grow up in WWF territory, but when I look for clips online, you know, there are plenty of WWF promos from that era. Uh, on YouTube and, and Daily Motion and so on that you can see. And I don't recall Arnold really saying anything. And, you know, once in a while, they'd have him be the guy to get beaten up by a heel, you know, by Via 
you know, making the turn. And I want to say, I can't remember. I want to say there was somebody else that Sergeant you know, Slaughter. Yeah. Slaughter took a, a shot at Skolan, but otherwise, you know, why was he there for Backlund? You know, and for that matter, why was he ever there for, for Bruno beforehand? I just don't understand what the reason was for having him. Here, here's the way I looked at it. And Arnold Skoland, he did not get consideration for my top 10, and he really didn't get consideration for my, my bottom 10. The way I saw it, through this Mark's eyes who went through, watched WWF Wrestling every Saturday morning from the time Backlund won the title to the time he lost it. Here, here's what I saw. It was that Bob Backlund, being the world's heavyweight champion, traveling to Japan, traveling all over the country, needed a manager. And he needed a guy who's going to book his hotel rooms, book his flights, get his training set, etc. And Arnold Skolan, to me, came across as a guy who did that. And yet, like you said, he, he, was, he would do interviews every now and then, but Bob was usually doing his own interviews. But I thought they, he, and he did the same thing with Bruno. They had a role and he filled it, and that's why he's not on my bottom ten. Well, you know that that actually makes good logical reason for why they would bring him in and and use him. And obviously, you know, he was somebody that you know had you know, an office position as well, and and a very important one. So I, I, I can see that. But yeah, you know, at the same time, while it explains why he was there, you know, to me, it doesn't seem like it was really necessary. I can see that, but like, like I said, his his role was so small, and I thought he played it well. But hey, g- good one for number one. I mean, you, that's interesting. I want to hear who, who your number one is. He wasn't on your top ten. Oh, wow. Once again, I need to really underline that this is nothing personal. I'm not assassinating this guy as a person. I just didn't like him as a wrestling manager. Obviously, I thought he was bit. Not only did I think he was bad, I thought he was the worst. Um, <laughs> the glory days of world class championship wrestling. They started on the night that Terry Gordy slammed the cage door on Kerry's head. And in my opinion, they ended when Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams got their head shaved at the Cotton Bowl. Gino and Chris had gotten stale. The Von Erichs won the ultimate match, and they kept the thing going anyway. But the next big thing in world class was supposed to be Rick Rude. And in my opinion, he never really got over. In my opinion, the, a big reason he never got over was Percy Pringle. I just don't see how anyone could take him and that voice of his seriously. And, and why, as a result, you know, they couldn't take Pringle seriously. I don't think Rude standing next to Pringle made it hard to take Rick Rude seriously, that he would have this guy as his manager. And certainly, you know, they're pushing him as their world's heavyweight champion. This is the manager of a world's heavyweight champion? Max, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, it's funny. As I, I think about where I rated him, I think I gave him probably too much credit for Paul Bearer, which is really outside of the time frame that we're looking at for this list. He got because, better as Paul Bearer. Because Paul Bearer, you know, I think he did a great job with that. But as you mentioned, everything you did about Percy Pringle, yeah, he it just didn't work, you know. and and. Rude was the wrong guy to be with him, and he was the wrong guy to be with Rude. And yeah, you you hope that they could have got somebody better, but you know they and and again another case of a territory going down the drain using somebody that made the bottom of this list. You know we talked about it with Rip Rogers getting pushed in Georgia and Florida as they went down the drain. You know Percy came to world class right from a year long run as Florida's top heel manager, 
and it just didn't work. And then he had the spell as a babyface manager with Embry in uh, 89 when they were doing that whole feud with Akbar. And it was funny. It should have been a channel changer, but it was wrestling. And I was, you know, therefore, you know, going to watch it regardless. But I certainly didn't enjoy it the way I used to. No. And even if I took the Rick Rude thing out of the equation, Percy wouldn't be number one, but he would be number five. I mean, that awful feud when he was a babyface hanging around with Eric Embry and even, you know, after Rick Rude, I mean, he was in world class. I, I never thought he was any good. I thought he was just silly. I thought he brought nothing to the table. Yeah, a little too much comedy, not enough deviousness, not enough danger. You know, it's not like, not that you would necessarily fear any of these people, but you never, you know, when he talked about how much money he had and when he talked about the power that he had and, you know, I'm going to do this to that guy and that to this guy, you never really believed it. It didn't really come off. Like you look at him and think, oh, yeah, I, you know, that guy, you know, he's somebody to watch out for. Whereas with Heenan, for some reason, I don't know, just I mean, he was incredible. But even in in comedy, he could make it come off better. No, I I, I mean, he never made me laugh either. Uh, I, you know, so he, he failed on comedy, he failed on seriousness. I will say this, like I said, um, he was dedicated to the business. I mean, I remember he got let go as a manager in 88. And he loved the business so much that he went to work at the concession stand in the Sportatorium, which, you know, sounds good. Well, he's very dedicated, but whoever said yes to that is an idiot because now you've got the guy who used to be the world champions (laughs) manager serving up pretzels and fries at the concession stand. You know, I'd never heard that. Uh, That's amazing that A, he would accept that role and and B, that they would try to use him as an on-screen personality again after that. <laughs> desperate times calls for desperate managers. But anyway, uh, if everything goes as planned next week, we will start with the top 10 best managers of the 1980s. Yeah, that sounds, sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. I've, I've got my list ready to go, and I'll be interested to compare it to yours and, and see where things match up and, and where they don't. We will soon dig in. Excellent, excellent. Come back next week to hear John and Max's list of the top 10 managers of the 1980s. You can find John on Twitter. Just look for the avatar with Moondog Mane smashing a chair over Don Morocco's head. Also, come join us on Facebook. Our page name is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I'm your producer, Lou Kippelman. And this concludes our podcast day.